Um, so today we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there. We're also going to be in 2 Peter later, if you want to mark it with your finger or whatever. Um, so we have been using First Sunday as an opportunity to teach through key doctrines. Um, and some of you might remember uh, that last month we talked about salvation uh, by faith and not works. Uh, we also touched on that salvation is by grace through faith. Um, and so what we're doing, if you guys don't know, is we're going through what is historically known as the five solas. Um, if you don't know that, that's okay. You just don't speak Latin. Um, the five solas are the sola fide, sola gratia, and the idea of like from the Reformation, these five statements that affirm what we know from Scripture about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Um, and we're going to dig in a little bit more. And the idea of this is we're covering doctrines that have historically been part of our faith all the way back through Scripture that were clarified when error was brought up related to it. And so just a little quick note on historical theology and things like catechisms and all this kind of stuff. Um, typically, when we have had error come up in church history, the people of God have come together to say like, all right, let's make sure we've got clear language on this so that we don't fall into error and that so that we can respond. It doesn't mean that that doctrine was invented then. It's that we clarified language for it then. So what I'm teaching though it was brought up about 500 years ago during the Reformation, this is not stuff that's 500 years old. This is stuff that's millennia years old. Everybody with me? So the five solas are salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Um, and so you don't have to need to know the Latin. We might cite them here and there just for the heck of it. Um, so last week, really quickly, or last month, we went through Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. By the way, like, almost all five of the solas are in there. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so we took some time and we talked about salvation is by grace and not merit. Um, there is this unhealthy thinking uh, that has popped up. I know Todd White has taught this a couple of times, that... That he says, yeah, when I look at the crucifixion of Jesus, I just think, man, I must be really great for God to do that much to want me, right? That's the wrong way to look at the crucifixion. That's really, really bad. What we should do is when we look at the crucifixion and say, man, I must have been so sinful that it costs that much to buy me back for God. When we're saved, it is not by any merit that we have in us. It is by God's goodness, he says, I want that one. Has nothing to do with merit. Everybody with me? Similarly, we say by faith and not works. While works always follow salvation, they're never causing it. You're saved completely by faith alone. You respond in repentance and humility and say, Jesus, I'm in. And you're saved. There is no amount of works. Even faith itself cannot be considered a work. Everybody with me? This is just review. So today we're going to jump into... Scripture alone, or sola scriptura is the really great Latin phrase if you want to sound really cool and theological. When we say scripture alone, we're not saying that we don't have value for church tradition or for creeds or confessions or things like that. What we're saying is scripture alone is our authority and all other things have to bow to it. Everybody with me? Because um, every now and then people are like, well, don't we have like a doctrinal statement? Isn't that like in addition to scripture? 
Oh, yeah, but what we're saying is that is subsequent to Scripture, that there is no, there is no co-equal in authority with Scripture. Everybody with me? So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into 2 Timothy, and we're going to learn a little bit about this. And some of you are like, Dan, come on, like, I believe in Scripture alone. Why, why are we teaching on this? I think you will find, surprisingly, how additions to Scripture just kind of creep in, and how we unknowingly at times start to hold other things up as more authoritative than scripture. And we're going we're gonna to address this, hopefully encourage you in the faith, teach you some doctrine, and it's going to be a good time. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to read. Lord Jesus, um, we're just going to acknowledge that um, we need you. Lord, when I teach, I realize that there's, there's really nothing special about my teaching other than your Holy Spirit showing up to anoint me. So Lord, if your Holy Spirit doesn't show up, this is going to be really boring. Um, the truth is it could feel kind of boring anyway because you could be nurturing us by your spirit and us not even fully realize it. So I'm just going to acknowledge, Jesus, we need you. We need your presence. We need the Holy Spirit in our midst. Thank you, Lord, that there's already been fellowship. You're already in our midst. Um, but God, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God to, it, that, to us that it would be clear, uh, to anoint me as I speak, that I would speak truth only and not error. And then, God, that you would just work in us by your Holy Spirit that we would know you better, know your truth well, and continue in the making of disciples. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Cool. So 2 Timothy 3, I'm going to start in verse 12. Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Just a little note, he's bringing up that, hey, there's going to be imposters come around for the purpose of deceiving and themselves being deceived. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the sacred writings he's referring to here? Scripture, man. Specifically the Old Testament, because Timothy, we wouldn't have had New Testament at the time Timothy was young. But yeah, he's referring to Scripture as a whole. And I want to draw a special attention here. The very last little part, he says that the sacred writings, that is Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What is he saying about the purpose of Scripture here? Yeah, it's Christ-centered, man. And what you will find, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, or whether we're talking about Genesis 1 or Revelation 21, that the focus is always on salvation in Christ. And so I'll just kind of note really quickly, this kind of goes with the other five solas we're teaching on, salvation by faith alone, through in Christ alone, by grace, all that. Um, What you will notice is that false teaching almost always tries to pull attention away from the person and work in Jesus Christ. And so sometimes people will be like, hey, doesn't this seem cool? Doesn't this seem good? But it's like, well, maybe this thing is not necessarily bad, but if my attention is drawn from the saving work of Christ, something's going wrong. Everybody following me with this? Paul, when he's about to jump into teaching on Scripture, he's pointing out that the purpose is salvation in Christ. Everybody with me? Cool. That's going to come up later. So in 2 Timothy 3, uh, starting around in verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're going to dig into this a little bit. 
um, this first little phrase here where it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Um, I think we count there four words, breathed out by God. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, that is only one word. And it is this word, theopneustos. Um, I actually was able to find a Greek font so that you could actually read that word in the Greek. Now you can feel like Greek scholars. It's really good. Here's what's really interesting about this word. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture or any other Greek writing that we can find. Our best guess is that needing to communicate a theological reality, Paul made a word. So this word, theopneustos, is the amalgamation of the word God, theos, and the word for breathed or spirit, which is panoustos. It's really interesting because the noun version of that is actually the same word we have for spirit. Not going to go too far in that other than what we know here, theopneustos means God breathed. There is no other word in scripture that comes to this level of communication on how powerful scripture is. Now, the theme is there all along that like we can see plenty of the, this is word is used uniquely here because Paul wants to make a really heavy point. And so if we can kind of dig in, this is from where we get the theological doctrine of what we call verbal plenary inspiration. Everybody with me? You've probably never heard of that. Some of you have. Um, I'm getting really into the deep doctrine for you guys because I believe you can handle it and because it's important. When we talk about verbal plenary inspiration, we're talking about being verbal, that it is every word was communicated by God. It does not mean that he dictated it. It means that he made sure that every word of scripture was exactly his words and exactly what he wanted, verbal. Plenary has the understanding of completeness, that it is reaching to all parts of scripture. This authority, this this rightness in wording is for the whole of scripture, not just for some of it. So plenary, and with that term plenary, this idea of completeness reaching to the uttermost of it, also comes this idea of authority, kind of subtly. So the idea is verbal, plenary, and also inspired. Typically, when we think of inspired, we think of somebody gets inspired to write a song because it was really good. This is on a whole other level, because what we're talking about is that God is divinely directing every word. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. You don't have to remember that phrase, but it is kind of handy in a theological discussion. Somebody would be like, be like, wait, what do you believe? Inspiration, whatever. For you to be able to say, hey, I believe it's every word is exactly what God wanted. And that's all of scripture is that. And it is divinely inspired and controlled by him. Verbal plenary inspiration. Cool? With me? Um, so we can go back one slide. Um, by the way, any questions? Is this all making sense? I know we're getting into some heavy stuff. I promise it's going to get really practical. But this is it's kind of huge. This is kind of key. Because if we haven't established Scripture as the authority, then all of a sudden we make room for everybody else to say whatever they feel like saying. And that gets to be a problem. It has been a problem historically. Cool. So um, we say it's inspired verbal plenary inspiration. Here's the other thing. If it is God's very word, that must mean it is without error. This is where we have the term inerrancy. If it is God's word and he controlled all of it, he doesn't make mistakes. So when we talk about inerrancy, we say that God's word is without error. He might quote something that's false, like, you know, there is, um, in Scripture, Satan lies, right? We quote his lies, that it, but it's an accurate and truthful depiction of what was said by the serpent in the garden. Everybody with me, in case that ever comes up? Cool. So, completely inerrant, authoritative. If it is God speaking, there's no higher authority than that, right? So, we talk about it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is an authoritative. Here's the other thing. 
If it is God's word, and it is, then it's accurate. And this kind of becomes key in in a lot of thinking, um, especially a lot of modern and postmodern thinking. We moved knowledge to the idea of subjectivity. And so people would be like, well, I feel like this, and so it must be true. Whereas historically, and in good epistemology, you don't need to know what that word means other than that's the study of knowledge. Well, we we should know things as it is self-revealed. I don't know that tree out there based on how I feel about it. I have to study it as it's revealed. I got to get up close. I've got to look at the bark. Maybe I take some pieces off. Maybe we look at it under a microscope. But it is as the tree reveals itself and we study that self-revelation that we know what it is. And so it is with God. The word of God is his accurate self-revelation. If I'm going to know God, I don't make guesses based on how I feel. I have to say, God, what do you say about yourself? You are outside of space and time. You have entered into space and time to reveal yourself. You have revealed yourself in scripture and in the order of the universe. I have to look at your self-revelation. And this becomes really important. Either I set myself up as the authority for knowing God, or I set up God as the authority for knowing God. This is critical to human knowledge of God. Everybody with me? So, God's word is accurate. Cool. All right, reading on. Um, Here in 2 Timothy 3, around verse 16 and 17, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God. We cover that and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Four things Paul brings up here. First of all, that scripture has profitability for teaching. By the way, this word for teaching is the same word for doctrine. Um, So typically when we think of doctrine, we think of theology, right? So he's saying that the value of Scripture is that you would be taught accurate belief about God. Cool? Check one. Second thing, he says it's valuable for reproof and correction. The language here of reproof, there's a little bit of debate because these words are so similar, reproof and correction. But the idea of reproof is when you are in error, either be it theological or sin, that scripture is there to point out your error and say like, hey man, you're wrong. But it is subsequently also value for correction. The language of correction is this idea of straightening something out. So in the same way that scripture is valuable for telling you you're wrong, it is also valuable for helping you get right. And so it's interesting, it's kind of two sides to a coin here. Not only is it valuable for teaching good doctrine, it is valuable for showing when you are in error, theological or sin, and helping you get back on the right track, both in holiness and in theological truth. Everybody with me? So then it says then that it's also valuable training in righteousness, that is becoming like Christ. So side note, anything being left out here at all? No, he's kind of covering it. He's kind of saying, like, Scripture is everything you need for the knowledge of God and for becoming like Christ and for being put on the right track and warned when you're on the wrong track. So, he ends this little section here by saying, so that the man of God, or that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Paul is saying, like, hey, complete, this idea of lacking nothing. So with scripture, I can study it and be theologically complete. I'm not missing something, right? And then on top of it, I'm equipped for every good work. That is, every ministry work, everything I need in scripture is there. 
Paul is making a statement not only for what Scripture is, that is God's very word, but for what it is for, and that it's for everything you need to be complete in the following of Jesus. Everybody with me? So if it's everything I need, and if it's, if it's sufficient, do I need anything else? No. So anytime somebody's coming along and saying, like, I have new revelation, da-da-da-da-da, well, we, we don't need it, Right? We've, it's, what's been revealed has been... Now, there's not, that there's not a place for the leading of the Holy Spirit, the directing of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating of God's Word. We value the Holy Spirit. We don't need something brand new. Scripture is complete. Cool? All right. Reading on. Um, a couple of key things worth just kind of pointing out here. There are some key characteristics of Scripture I'm just going to bring up. Paul's addressed them uh, to some extent here. One, it's unified in its message. Paul already mentioned that Scripture focuses on the saving work of Jesus. Um, You have heard me talk about this grand narrative that we see in Scripture. We see creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All of Scripture is pointing to this work of Christ, right? Even the Old Testament, when we're seeing sacrifice mentioned from the very back early Genesis, right after sin, when there's this need for a blood sacrifice, it's pointing to Jesus who would be the ultimate sacrifice. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament law, when God sets up, hey, here's what you need to do to be perfect, and oh, by the way, I'm expecting you to not be perfect. So here is a sacrificial system that points ahead to Jesus, right? Jesus comes, he's the ultimate sacrifice, and then he's restoring things back to God. It's all a message of Jesus, right? So if there were to be some kind of extra revelation come up, it should be saying the exact same thing. And so what I will always note is if we know that Scripture is always pointing to salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, then if something comes up that is supposedly from God that does not affirm and promote that, we know that it's theological error. Everybody with me? Cool. Most of you guys are like, yeah, Dan, I'm with you. Part of what I'm doing today is reiterating something that I hope you already know, strengthening your knowledge of it and building your faith in the process. But on top of it, my guess is there's a few things that you're going to be like, did not know that, right? Cool, all right? And hopefully you're seeing that like this is not some doctrine that we just said, eh, we're just going to value scripture a lot. This is like God himself has spoken and said, hey, it's everything you need. It's my very own words. Powerful. Cool. Second thing is that um, we mentioned it focuses on creation, fall, redemption, restoration, focuses on the person and work of Christ. It always communicates salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You're not going to look at some place in scripture and find salvation by works. It's not there. You're not going to find if somebody comes up and tries to teach something and say, I have something new and now you have to do this thing to be saved. You're going to be like, nah, sucker, you're wrong. And for millennia, from, from before recorded time, We have had this message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You want to add to that? You're wrong. Cool. All right. So anyway, we're going to read on. Let's jump over to 2 Peter. I promise not to take too long here. But if you're wondering, while Scripture's authority is affirmed throughout Scripture and church history, 2 Timothy and 2 Peter are the two passages that get used the most when we're talking about inspiration of Scripture. Cool? All right. So Peter is writing. And he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic God, by, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Does anybody know what he's referring to here? So, close. Because very, very similar. At the baptism, God says this same thing. But he's not talking about being in the Jordan River. He says we're on the holy mountain. Yeah. Yeah, man. Transfiguration. This is when Jesus has like a few of his buddies with him. And all of a sudden, what is it, Elijah and Moses show up and encourage him. And like there's all this shining light from heaven. And, the whole, and God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter is saying like, I was there when God himself spoke from heaven and said, this is the guy. He's saying, this is not some cleverly devised myth. I'm an eyewitness of God affirming the deity of Christ on this earth. Cool? So, very interesting. We're going to read on. We have ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Um, I'm going to jump back again and just point out, notice that he's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. So when Paul was talking about Scripture being inspired by God, he mentions that it is helpful for salvation, it is essential for salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul mentions that, right? Now we have Peter saying, hey guys, this is all about Jesus. We notice a theme here. Cool? Everybody's with me. So reading on. He says, um, in the next verses, he says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes out of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is getting into, like, here's how Scripture happened. That, like, men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit to make sure that every word, just like Paul mentioned, was God-breathed. Everybody with me? Notice, both of them are affirming the centrality of Christ and the work of God in bringing his word. Cool, cool. All right, so, I already mentioned in this, but this whole thing is that the focus of Scripture is salvation by grace alone and Christ alone. In fact, Peter, later on, after he addresses the issue of false teachers, in 2 Peter chapter 3.18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, or of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and now. And to the day of eternity, amen. What Peter is saying is despite all of the false teaching and all the other stuff, just grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Everybody with me? Cool, cool. All right. So I'm just going to take a minute. I don't like doing this very much, but I, I can't not address issues of error uh, before we close this out. Um, and there's a few issues of error that I think we need to address because some of them we are prone to ourselves. The one is in the New Apostolic Reformation. Not everybody's heard of this. There are some nice guys in the New Apostolic Reformation, but there is an issue in a lot of them to affirm this idea of new super apostles that are stepping up and teaching new inspired scripture. There's a problem with that in that these guys were not people who were commissioned directly by Jesus. So we have Paul is an apostle, writes scripture. He met Jesus. Jesus commissioned him, right? The other 12 similarly Guys right now did not have the benefit of walking the earth with Jesus. They could be a small a apostle in the sense of a missionary, but to be able to write with the authority of Scripture, none of us have it right now. 
And what my concern is, is many in that movement, and I would say I've got some brothers and sisters that flirt with that movement that are not in error, but they make me nervous. Um, The issue is that if I am teaching an additional message, what normally happens is what I've seen is people is that they start elevating that new teacher and de-emphasizing scripture. And I'm like, hey, if it is new revelation from God, it should be affirming salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And unfortunately, the message starts becoming much more of, hey, we need to do this thing over here, and those are the old things. We're talking about the new things. I got some brothers connected to it, and so I don't want to be too harsh. I just want to point out and say, like, we, that's dangerous. You know, if I'm elevating something over Scripture itself, I got a problem. Uh, secondly, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, paragraph 44 points out that Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored as equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. That's not good. They can't be co-equal. We value tradition, you guys. In fact, by me teaching on the five solas, we're talking about some tradition. Praise God for it. There's value in tradition. Tradition must always bow to the authority of Scripture. Um, by the way, when we say sola scriptura, we don't mean only Scripture ever. We mean only Scripture is authoritative. Make sense? Um, and so this is where we have an issue in the Catholic Church. We're like, guys, we can't have tradition be on par. That's why we have error. Similarly, we have the word faith movement, at times focusing on kind of my power that God's put in me so that I can like speak things into existence. Again, de-emphasizing salvation by grace through faith in Christ. It's one of those, like, I got some brothers that are flirting and kind of in that movement. And I'm like, guys, depending on how far in you go, you can get in real error because we start emphasizing my own power, my own desires and what God's going to give me rather than, hey, what you need is salvation from your sin back to God in Christ alone through faith alone. Cool. Uh, other things we run into is emotionalism. You guys ever run into this where like we're reading from scripture and we say, this is what the word of God says. And somebody's like, yeah, but that just doesn't feel like God to me. I hear this a lot, man. This is what I hear mostly in evangelical circles where they're like, oh, but it just doesn't seem like God would be like that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what he seems like to you, right? I could say, ah, it just doesn't seem like leaves would have, you know, trees would have leaves. That doesn't matter what I feel about it. What matters is what is. And God has self-revealed himself in scripture to teach certain things. I can't look at that and say like, ah, it just doesn't feel like God. No, like my own understanding, my feelings, my sentiments have to bow to the authority of scripture. Can you guys kind of see this thing going on? This is where also where people are like, I just don't feel saved. I've heard, I've heard that one a lot, actually in Baptist circles. That was a big one. Like, I just don't feel saved. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? You believe in the atoning death and resurrection? Yeah, you committed to him as Lord. Yeah, then you're saved whether you feel it or not. It is God's promise over your own feelings. Praise God for that. Because most of us will have plenty of times where we fall into sin and we feel like crap and we feel like God wouldn't love us. Good thing it is his truth that trumps our feelings. This is good stuff. And I'm going to tell you, my biggest concern in the American church is that we fall into the emotionalism and experientialism. Here's another thing. I know I'm just kind of pointing these out, um, but I feel like we ought to. Um, This kind of whole self-help teaching, and this one kind of gets a little blurry, but it's this idea that like, well, Scripture is fine and all, but I really want to help, help accomplishing my goals. I want to feel this way. I want to get this, my dream completed. Um, and we're seeing this a lot, man. I just be really honest, even in evangelical circles, sermons that focus on like, Hey, um, God wants to help you overcome that giant. And it's like, what? Like, okay, 
you just got to find the five smooth stones of bravery and whatever. And they kind of like read in this allegory. And I'm like, oh man, if I'm looking at the story of David and Goliath, the message is that God sends a redeemer to save his people from the fear of death, right? It's, a, it's, it's foreshadowing Christ. In, in the story of David and Goliath, when I read it, I'm not David, man. I'm, I'm some freaking wimp who's in the back of the, of shaking in his boots that this Goliath is here. And God has sent a redeemer to save me, right? And what I've noticed is we'll talk about like dare to be a Daniel and stand up to whatever. Like, nah, there's, and, and not to say that there's not a principle there. Like, I don't want to like, I also, I also don't want to go too far the other way. But man, if the focus is on me and my dreams and what I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting further away from redemption in Jesus Christ and him doing all the work. This is all about him saving me. So I get a little bit nervous. I know this whole Girl, Wash Your Faith book is kind of popular right now. I read it and I'm like, nah, I haven't read all the way through it. But I'm reading these little things. I'm like, it seems like this is self-help. This is not the gospel. You can't help yourself. You need Jesus. Cool. Last one we run into is theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is where we say, oh, well, we know miracles don't happen because science proves they don't. So must not mean that, right? And so they'll look at like the resurrection of Christ and they'll say, well, since we know people don't raise from the dead, maybe what this means is that like Jesus raises into our hearts and we'll kind of fluffy up this whole thing. But I'm like, hey, what the word of God says is that Jesus' flesh and bone rose from the dead and he ate And he walked on water and people could touch him. His flesh and bone rose from the dead. And that is our hope, is the hope of the resurrection. And if all I'm hoping for is some kind of neoliberal, like, oh, Jesus kind of floated around and he's kind of in my heart and I feel him and he's with me in the same way that my dead grandma is with me. No, man. If I've taken what is supposedly scientific knowledge and put it on par with scripture, what I'm essentially saying is like, ah, scripture, I'm going to trust science over you. Little note, science is continually changing because it is a method, not a set of truths. Scripture is a set of truths. Again, we value science, right? But it's continually changing. It is not revealed truth. We always trust Scripture. Everybody following me on this? So what I'd hopefully like you to think is like, I'll confess that like historically, I've had a tendency to kind of lean into like the experientialism where I've been like, Oh, but I just don't like that message. If I say that, people are going to be offended. And so I don't want to say that. So I'm just going to maybe feel like Jesus is a little different than what it says here. Maybe I can reinterpret this another way. No. What I have to do is say, like, God, that's what you said. Maybe I've misunderstood it. Maybe I need to study it a little bit better to understand it better. But I'm responding with faith and saying, God, if this is who you say you are, okay. I might not even like it, but I trust you. And you guys remember when we talked last week, we were talking about salvation by faith alone and that consistently there was this opportunity. Hebrews 11 addresses that like either you respond in faith or you respond with pride. There's no in between. Either I say, God, I trust you. Even if I don't like it, even if I don't quite fully believe it yet. Like, you know, what's, what's the guy who said like, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, even if I can say like, whatever you say, God, I don't quite get it yet, but okay, I'm, I'm having faith to have faith, Right? But man, if I look at it and say, like, I just don't like that. No. Man, it's pride. Scripture says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I never want to be counted among the prideful. So, if you guys can just remember, 
when Peter is talking about all this in 2 Peter, he says, just grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So if you're like, man, what, what should I be doing? Just keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do that through the word, man. This is not brand new stuff. This is old, old truth that I'm hoping gets grounded in you so deep. And I see some of you, I know that it's grounded in you deep. Um, This is the message we have. Cool? All right, so my admonition today is that just as Peter said, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace. Jesus has saved you completely by grace and not merit. You don't earn anything. He died to pay the penalty for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you new life. And Scripture continually, continually reveals it. So just keep soaking that in. And that's what we're doing with the Word of God. So I'm going to pray, and then we've got a couple of announcements, um, and we will fellowship over food. Cool? Um, Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for giving... God, thank you for giving us your Word. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Um, Thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth. Uh, God, may we be ever submitted to your Word. Lord, I will confess many, many times I look at Scripture and I'm like, that just doesn't seem right to me. And it seems like when I just respond in faith... You either show that I misunderstood it or that I was just plain wrong. (laughs) And you are who you are. And God, who you are is more wonderful than I can imagine, even when it seems contrary to what I think should be right. So God, may we soak in your word. May we speak it to one another. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through the teaching and study of your word. We ask all this in your name. Amen.